Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin. Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. Now, everyone loves transfer rumours. They guarantee clicks, views, and ratings. But are they a waste of breath? Is the transfer market about to undergo a revolution? If so, and it looks likely, what will that look like? Fewer big deals? Shorter contracts? More players discarded? It's going to be a whole new ball game, isn't it, Aid? <laughs> I sense it will be. Yeah, I, I still think clubs will show ambition. It's it, it's it's what they're about, isn't it? You've got to you've got to have a transfer market, but I think it will will feel a lot different in, in the early stages. A lot of it depends, of course, on the resolution or otherwise of, of the Premier League season, doesn't it? Because if that television revenue is lost, then so much more money will have disappeared from the game. So so first and foremost. Yeah, we, we kind of need need that money to come into the game. I think it'll be, it could go one of two ways. I, I do feel that a lot of players on existing contracts won't seek to renew two years early, particularly, I think, a lot, maybe looking to sit tight on their current wages because the chances of getting a rise might might be quite slim in, in the short term. So that's, that's one side of it where it might be stagnant. But I also feel it could be super active in the fact that so many teams need to recoup some money. And to do that, obviously, they need to trim their wage bills. They'll offload players for fun, in my opinion. And there could be some bargains out there. And and, and the issue here as well, which has to come into play, is I'm sure that FFP regulations, which have been pretty loose anyway, I'm sure they'll be relaxed or ignored in the short term. And that does open the door for certain clubs who are owned by mega-rich gazillionaires to cherry-pick the best bargains out there. So there is a danger that the best off might be even better off come the end of this. But aren't big fees, you know, and we're talking about, you know, 100 million plus here, Seb, aren't they likely to be as rare as hen's teeth at best? Well... My instinct says yes, Mike, but then I, I was thinking about this this morning and I wonder whether some of these players, and I, I, I am referring to the kind of the, the very top 2 or 3%, I wonder whether some of these players, purely by virtue of, of what their marketing and commercial values are, I wonder whether they're going to actually retain some of the value because if you, for instance, say, say this summer I wanted to sign a, a player like Jaden Sancho. Now, Given what I've lost as a football club, and there are very few players, very few teams that could afford to buy someone like that. Given what I've lost in terms of match day revenue and potentially television income, doesn't the scarcity of someone like that and 
the kind of branding opportunity they represent. Isn't that scarcity is sort of increased? Mm. Um, I don't know. My economics, it never really got beyond a, a, an AS level, unfortunately. I never did it, yeah. Well, thank, thank, thank God anybody who ever taught me probably isn't listening to this. <laughs> but but, I, I but just wondered, it's interesting I, I, you say that, Seb, because, you know, there are so many mixed messages flying around at the moment. On the one hand, we're asked to believe that Man United are aiming to build an international brand around Sancho, and that's obviously their sales pitch to him and his his agent. But on the other hand, you've got Ed Woodward basically saying that the sums that are being talked about, big mega money, old-fashioned mega money, if you like, they just aren't realistic. So what's the truth of it, you think, Aid? Oh, (laughs) none of us know, do we? we? We don't know. I don't think the clubs themselves know what the state of play is going to be when when we come out of it. All I know is that Dortmund, as much as they always have in the past, have they've always been a selling club. They develop players, they move them on. That won't change, will it? What I, th- I think might be in, in somebody like Manchester United's favour here is that Dortmund might be willing to, because they'll be as hard up off the back of this as anyone else, you'd imagine, they might be willing to take a different kind of structure to what they would have accepted before. It may still be on paper, £150 million, it might be, but they might accept it over a period of five or six years, potentially, whereas before they they could have hardballed and and tried to get more money up top. I, I feel that the buyers are going to be in a very, very strong position in the very near future because there are going to be so many clubs that need to sell. And they, and, and the other thing is, is the wages. They need to get these these players off the book. So it, none of us know is, is the bottom line, but it's going to be different. Yeah, it has to know, be. Are we likely to see a sort of a, almost like a bog-off situation when buy one, get one free, where you're <laughs> going to end up with clubs basically trying to load transfers with players that they want to get rid of. So mm. if, okay, you, you know, we will have Sancho and you can have the pick of four of our first team players at Man United, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah they'll be shared in bodies. Yeah, they really will. Managers will have to accept that, but clubs, chairmen and owners will be going to managers and saying, we need to get... It'll be a streamlining exercise. That's what it'll be. The elite players will still be kept on. Of course they will. But those filler players, those squad men, those ones that you have just in case, I can see a whole batch of those being being moved on. And, and what the effect of that will be is that the Championship, League One and League Two, providing they will you know, survive what's to come then the quality, in theory, could end up going up down the leagues, you know, because you're, you're only getting, you're having smaller squads with stronger players. Unfortunately, that one byproduct of that is that a lot of footballers will lose their careers. They'll come out of professional football, but I think that is inevitable. The same as it is in all these other industries, the airline industry, for example, so many people are going to be made redundant. It's the same for football. And not just players, by the way. We talk about the dangers of relegation, don't we? And what that means to clubs in terms of, of shedding staff. You wait. You wait until until the dust settles here. A lot of staff working for football clubs will, will lose their jobs. It's really, really sad. Guys, I think um, just for the sake of a prediction, actually, with the transfer market, I think the loan market's going to explode. Mm. We've already seen it becoming a sort of a, you know, a more popular option, you know, with some really high ticket players moving out, not just on one year loans, but two. It's going to be very strange because obviously within a loan comes the provision that players aren't allowed to play against their parent clubs. 
So you could have this really bizarre distortion of the game in which, you know, a higher percentage than ever before are actually on loan on temporary contracts. And I, I would say you'd have to relax the sort of any stipulation which says, right, well, if you're a Chelsea player, you can't play against Chelsea for two years because it's just going to become absurd over time. Um, mm. So it's, it's really interesting. And I think that will be the easiest way of offsetting wages just because if you're, if you're employing um, a player at £150,000 a week, there are very few clubs who you can sell that player to or who that player is going to agree to join. And so we're going to be looking at deals where, okay, well, we'll pay 60% of his wages or we'll do this or, you know, some kind of subsidizing of that basic wage over two or three year periods. Mm. It's going to be really interesting. I think that's the way forward. It's loans. And on that, but isn't that on... already happening, Seb? You know, mm. I've, I've been sort of asking around over the last couple of days in, you know, people in recruitment teams or, you know, directors of clubs or, or even managers and you do get some anomalies within the system. You know, you know, I'm told Leeds United, for instance, are committed to paying one particular player £93,000 a week. He has had minimal impact at first team level. If they go up, they are obliged to pay £20 million for him. That guy is there on loan and might end up being unwanted or unnecessary because someone in the first place didn't do their due diligence. Now, football has been notoriously lax in that area. Has football got to learn lessons in how to deal with players and their values and the financial implications of decisions, which, let's face it, are often taken in panic? Oh, without question. I mean, so... The instance that you're referring to, that is the classic case of a club looking at their situation and thinking, what do we need to do to guarantee promotion? And not really thinking beyond that, thinking only of the positive end of that scenario. I don't think there's actually a limit on the number of lessons football needs to learn. The Championship gets a little bit of a flogging on our podcast because we reference the wage spend versus revenue ratio an awful lot, but with good reason, because there's this... It's not ambition. There's there's this sort of there's this recklessness. There's this absolute obsession with the best possible outcome, and football has got to learn eventually that that's all well and good, but you have to equip yourself to deal with the worst case scenario too. And twenty million pounds, ninety three thousand pounds a week, Mike, in the championship. That is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, it's bonkers. I tell you, I tell you who will be sweating at the moment. And I think that's that's the agents around the country. What do we think is going to happen there? Because agents will still exist, of course they will. They still represent these guys. I think football might come together. Clubs certainly might might make some kind of pact here, whereby they they cap agents' fees because the days of uh, just writing checks to agents. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll give him a meal. No problem, blah, blah, blah. I think the days of, of that happening might have to be over. So there might be a, a percentage, I guess, of the package that, that goes to the agent and no more. So we'll have to wait and see on that. I think they're just going to have to work harder for their money agents because they'll be super active. They'll be doing loads and loads of deals. But I don't know if they'll be earning anywhere near as much for each deal in the future. Do you guys think, I mean, obviously, sort of, the way this has always played out in the past, agents have always had a big optics problem. Now, I think that you know, even before the coronavirus pandemic, there was very little appetite to hear of agents earning 
five, ten million pounds for a transfer deal. Can you imagine what that's going to be like after this finishes, given the sort of sacrifices that different people have made? Yeah, I, with agents, you know, we always have the temptation to, you know, bring out the world's smallest violin. <laughs> I I tend to think that a lot of players will be instructed or advised to get to the end of their contract and we'll almost have a situation where the signing on fee for a new club is the new transfer fee. So in other words, the agent will still get his or her cut, but in a different way because they do tend to get what they want, don't they, Aid? <laughs> no, they do. They do. And I'm sure they're, they're thinking hard. It, it much will depend on whether the clubs, there's a, a yearning, a desire for the clubs to to limit a the power of agents and b primarily really the income you know what they pay agents. I think these deals have to be done, and I do think that that some of the fees that that have been commanded have been over the top. So I just don't see that happening in in the future. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I agree with you completely on the, on the contracts. More and more players will run down their contracts because a they'll stay on their their current deals for fear of, you know, or knowing that they won't get a rise. And then they'll think that they'll have the pick of the clubs. The problem is, Mike, there's going to be a lot of players in a similar boat. It's only the top end free transfers that that are going to be quids in here. I think lower down the pyramid where a club might have 10 players in a position to choose from, all out of contract, all fairly similar. There might even be a bidding war going the other way in terms of what will you accept? It might be. I mean, it, it seems a dramatic flip around, but but it might be the case where a Swindon town might have three targets who, who they regard as similar, and they might go to the one that will accept the lowest money rather than striving to pay certain player the most money. I can see that scenario unfolding in certain situations. We'll have to wait and see, of course. Yeah, you know, there is still speculation around and, you know, in the interests of the the hits and everything else that I spoke about right at the start, we might as well be shameless and have a bash at that ourselves. (laughs) Um, You know, let's try try and look at deals which we think are perhaps not realistic, but possible. Now, Chelsea will inevitably be linked with players, you know, because the end of the transfer ban, the need for a striker... Two names keep recurring, Dries Mertens and Aubameyang, which I'm sure will alarm you, Aid. Are those two realistic? Well, they're good players, aren't they? What what they are as well is experienced. And when you look at the Chelsea squad, it probably needs experience. You've got so many of those good, good young players. It needs to be balanced out. And, and a lot of the older guys, guys like Giroud, will probably be the ones moved on. Yeah, they're good enough. You can you can understand the interest. And Aubameyang, we all know, is is coming towards the end of his current contract. Arsenal are trying their best to persuade him to stay, but but his head could be turned. Personally, I don't know if Chelsea is enough to turn Aubameyang's head. One last move, would it be to Chelsea? Would that be his dream move in his mind? I don't think so. I think he'll be looking for for to to become a a Barca Real Madrid Bayern Munich player if if they express an interest. But but Dries Mertens, I could certainly see rocking up at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, I noted with interest. You know, Real Madrid were talking about shedding eleven players in the summer, which is obviously another sign of the times. 
players coming from Spain. Saul has been talked about from Atletico Madrid to Manchester United. Thomas Partey has been talked about United or Arsenal. Do you think, Seb, we'll be seeing players coming from La Liga into England? Yeah, I could certainly see Partey coming to Arsenal. Saul's a really interesting case because his scenario is a bit more complicated. He, he has a release clause somewhere in the region of 135, 140 million pounds. But I think about 40% of his image or his, his economic rights are owned by a company called QSI, which is controlled by Peter Kenyon and George Mendes. It's quite a nebulous situation to negotiate as a buying club. So if you're Manchester United, for instance, or Manchester City, there's an obligation whereby if you meet his asking price and Sal refuses to join, then Atletico are, are obliged to buy out these economic rights from QSI. And in any case, the fee below that level is agreed. I think Atletico are only due to receive less than half of it. It's one of those situations that I think ideally FIFA would like to outlaw from the transfer market in the future. But it makes buying a player like that extremely, not extremely difficult in terms of the negotiation, but extremely expensive. You pay possibly above £100 million for someone like Jaden Sancho, just because he's younger, he's more marketable, he's English, which really helps if he's coming to the Premier League, that is. With someone like Saul, who's in his mid-twenties, oof, I don't know. It makes getting him out of his existing contract very, very hard. Yeah, from a footballing perspective, I just, I would, I could Lovely see, player. I could see the Saul and Fred combination being being particularly strong in behind a Bruno Fernandez. But but as Seb has outlined, it sounds like it might be a complicated process. Mm. You know, we are talking about big money transfers. Just for a moment, can we just almost turn the world on its head? Let's look at what is, you know, perhaps not probable might not even be possible. Let's be creative and see, can football almost adopt a new model? And I'm by this, I'm, you know, what, what sort of piqued my attention was in rugby, where I saw the championship clubs almost being set up to provide players, their best players, in an annual draft to the premiership. So in other words... You know, I don't know how that you know precisely that would work. You would think that there must be set fees for set players or something like that. Could football almost think outside the box here and almost introduce their own draft system? You know, what's stopping them? Well, I know what's stopping them because of the politics of it. But what about you know, a centralised pool of the best young players away from the clubs? You know, the FA, as you know, a did a national school, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was offered a place in that national school decided not to go actually Arsenal weren't weren't keen on me going but yeah no that back in the day that was that was something they did they got the best young players early but the bottom line is it was then and it is the case now they didn't own you it's, it's the clubs that you're registered to and that and that and they're the most precious commodities aren't they I mean you just have to go and look at a youth team game and you see who's watching it's, it's scouts it's agents watching kids football because they are the ones that are going to make them money so there's no way that clubs are going to lose their grip on, on the best talent, in my opinion. And on, on, on the draft, I think it's a, it's a great idea. And, I, and I, I like the way it works, especially in the NFL, you know, NBA and stuff. But You've got I, the, the college system there, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I just, I just, who runs the game in this country? Who are the most powerful people in this country? It's the biggest clubs. 
And the biggest clubs will not want to level the playing field because the, the idea of the draft in those competitions is to even it out. The best talents get offered to the least successful teams and then there are trade-offs that, that, that happen around it. I don't see it. I think it's too big a culture change. Would the best players in the championship accept going to a side near the bottom of the Premier League when they know someone else wants them? I, I, I like the idea, but I think, I think it's too far. I don't know what Seb thinks. Well, also, some of the biggest clubs in this country have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of million pounds building the facilities to navigate this problem specifically. They want to own the talent from a very young age. They want the talent living on their facility. Even if they don't expect the player to eventually play for their first team, they want the benefit of being able to sell the player somewhere else into the game. And, and sort of, so culturally, I, I'm with Mike, I'm with you, Aid. I think this, is a, this has become a huge problem in terms of how talent is wasted in the game and how people are misused and all the kind of mental health aspects that we've talked about in previous episodes. But the game culturally has moved so far away from that point that I don't think you can bring it back. But you know, one thing that you said, Aid, which you know I accepted, but it jarred nonetheless. <laughs> you know, players are owned by their clubs, yeah, which yeah. you know has all sorts of feudal ramifications, doesn't it? Why shouldn't footballers be treated like any other employee? Mm-hmm. You get an offer to go to another firm, mm-hmm. you go. <sighs> I think I, idealistically, that's a great, it's a great idea, a great notion. But, you know, employees in normal industries aren't, don't have a value on their head, do they? They don't, you know, they're not worth tens of millions of pounds. And I know, I know that you're, what you're talking about will sort of effectively quash that. But, I, I, yeah, I just feel that you, football, the way it's run and set up, it needs a transfer market. It needs the money swish, swilling around to keep it functioning at the levels that, that, that it's operating at, at the moment. I, yeah, I, it would be fascinating. But as a fan, though, Mike, would you really want that? Would you want to see players just moving move jobs effectively, willy-nilly, without any restriction? Because and, and would you trust the game and clubs not, not to be, you know, not to be putting a lot of underhand dealings into place behind the scenes? Well, I wouldn't trust the clubs for sure. I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them, perfectly honest. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not hung up on, on the idea of, of club loyalty as I once was as a kid, you know, where you used to have, you know, you used to revere, you know, when I was growing up, you know, watching Watford as a kid, there was, there was a, a player, a fullback called Duncan Wellborn, who played every game for six and a half years, you know, record appearance holder. He was a man of his times. Now, you know, I'm almost weaned off the idea of loyalty. Now, I know also, you know, concurrent to that, there is a new sort of fandom where, you know, so, you know, you hear of the younger generation of guys not actually supporting clubs, but actually following individual players like a Beckham or a, or Ronaldo or a Messi. So, you know, again, I, I, I raised this whole point simply because football, like everything else in life at the moment, is undergoing a pretty fundamental shift. And it's a generational shift. It's a, it's a multi-generational shift. And, it, you know, who knows what's going to be at the other side. Having said all that, there are still some things that are happening which are almost 
a throwback to the old days. And by the old days, I mean about three months ago. <laughs> Newcastle United. <laughs> you know, there was a, a you know, really good programme on BT Sport last night where Mauricio Pochettino, his love for Tottenham did come out in, the, in you know, the, the review of the European nights. You know, we wake up to, to headlines, back page headlines. Newcastle United are going to pay him £19 million a year to, you know, take them into the bright new dawn. Have they learned nothing at Newcastle from Manchester City? I I don't think so. I, I think this is just the this is just what happens when you buy a football club and you've got a lot of money. You have this kind of whether whether it's factually based or not, you have this interim period where everything is possible, anyone is possible, and any amounts of money are possible. But when you when you hear it at the moment, you just it's such a it's such a tone deaf thing to allow to, to seep out into the public discourse. I was actually, just before we started recording, I was speaking to a, a Tottenham supporting friend of mine because we watched the programme you, you referenced there on, on BD Sport last night, Mike. You can understand it because just listening to Pochettino now, he's he's talking about... Jake Humphrey, I think, asked him about the the preparation for the Champions League semi-final against Ajax. And he ignores all of that and he, he goes off in a second language on a 10-minute monologue about how how much admiration he has for the NHS. It almost made me a little bit tearful. I just thought it's just such a such a good human being. It's <laughs> such a nice person. And you can understand why someone wants his qualities within their football club at any price. I, I get that because he's a he's a special person, Mauricio Pochettino. Having said that, if just for the next month or so football can do without throwing around ninety million pounds here and twenty five million pounds there, mm-hmm. that would probably be appreciated. That that would really help its reputation, I think. But but Manchester, you, you said there, Mike. You know, they not learned from Man City. Man City have won so much silverware, haven't they? Since since the new ownership came in. So if you're if you're a follower of Newcastle, you you're really excited, aren't you? About about yeah, these kind uh, of. What I was what I was making the point there, you know, perhaps cack-handedly, was that Manchester City have been you know criticised. There's been the what aboutery on social media. You know, one about the nature of their ownership, but secondly, you know, when when clubs come in and throw lots of money around, like you know, huge sums of money around, under new ownership, it does invariably cause a lot of dissent and a lot of ugliness. Yeah, and and they become unpopular, and Newcastle aren't unpopular are they, at the moment, they, but they they would be. My other question, and I said I I probably answered it myself earlier on in the show. When I talked about FFP kind of being put on the back burner and ignored for a bit, it, they, would they be allowed? I mean, without, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much revenue Newcastle United are, are generating, but it might take a little while for them, surely, to be able to to kind of afford to to bring in the likes of Pochettino on those those salaries and to to spend huge fees on on players like Philippe Coutinho, who's been who's been linked. So so that's something else to consider, even though the new ownership or the potential new ownership have loads of money, are they actually going to be allowed to spend what they have? Probably, because we might be taking our eye off the ball, but but that's something to, to think about. Yeah. I suppose, that, you know, I also want to give credit where it's due. You know, Chelsea was probably the club that introduced the whole notion of, you know, the billionaire, Obviously, the Glazers were involved before Roman Abramovich, 
But I think their approach to football is a lot more parasitic than perhaps someone like Abramovich, where I see Chelsea, and I don't know what you feel here, Seb, I think Chelsea are winning the lockdown, if you know what I mean. If you think about what they've done, 128 hotel rooms for NHS staff, 80-odd thousand meals for the vulnerable, there's no furlough, they're supporting their casual staff, fans have been reimbursed for a couple of trips that they couldn't do, players have been directed to continue funding their own charities. That is, to me, the epitome of what a big football club can do and possibly should do for its community and for the wider the wider community away from football. What do you think, Seb? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think what's interesting is that at no point have Chelsea needed to be corrected on their course by public opinion. So there are a couple of clubs in this country who have found the right path eventually, but only because the response to what they originally wanted to do has been so acrid. I think before we even talk about the specifics of what Chelsea have done, I think what's mattered and what's been the key to the sort of the, the positive PR, if you want, in this situation is how they've communicated. I compare it to the Tottenham scenario where, as is almost typical with football, it has this aversion to justifying its stance on things. It just does what it wants to do and expects the world to deal with it. Whereas even in this latest instance with Chelsea where they still haven't come to an agreement with their players over wage deferrals, but they've explained that. They haven't tried to create a situation where the players are vilified for not accepting you know, a negotiation which perhaps isn't in their favour. It's been very transparent. And I think, yes, it, it matters that football clubs are seen to be doing without or supporting local communities. But it's also important that they allow the public to understand why certain decisions are being made. And that's something they've really got right. That is the basic of the basis of everything else that they've managed to get right is they've understood the need to do that. And there are lessons for pretty much I say Manchester United have also come out of this quite well. They've done very well. I'd also like to sort of pay some respect to the England women's team because unlike the men's equivalent or any Premier League players, they weren't under any pressure, any public pressure to give up wages or give up fees or salaries or anything else. But yet they were still part of the benevolent program towards the NHS, which is very, very impressive. No one would have noticed really had that not happened. So yes, but it, it's it's all about, I think, looking back, it's all about who's done things off their own back. It's all about, right, what do we, what is our responsibility as an organisation? Not what looks good and what corrects this flow of negative coverage that we're attracting as a result of furloughing or of not deferring executive salaries. And Chelsea Chelsea have, have really led by example, absolutely. Do you think this almost sets or could set a new mood, Aid? Difficult to tell. I, I, I echo what, what Seb said. What I, I have respect for is here is that Chelsea haven't thrown their players under the bus. Yeah. And it's been a very controlled way that they've let the information come out to the public. I mean, in essence, Chelsea's players didn't accept the deferrals or cuts that, that Chelsea wanted them to take. And that could have been leaked out. And we could be reading stories about, you know, how disgraceful Chelsea's players are for not agreeing to the deal that Chelsea wanted, especially in light of, of, of Arsenal players, for example, agreeing to do these to do these cuts. So, 
So yeah, I, I give Chelsea Chelsea credit for for controlling that. I do think down the road, if if the Premier League season doesn't resume until the autumn, or maybe you know, heaven forbid, it doesn't, it, it just stops, it gets voided, which is becoming more of a reality. I think in you know, people are talking about it more often now. Then, then difficult conversations will have to take place. Yeah, isn't the reality of it that no one knows where we're going, and you know, people are, are sort of putting two and two together and making five when they're saying, well, well, look at what's happening in France. You know, no no football before September. There are so many things going on, so many clubs who are, you know, kicking against the idea that any games played behind closed doors will be on neutral venues. You've got players saying, well, hang on a second, you know, we want to be tested. You've got the logistical issue of clubs bringing players from all around the world to restock the Premier League when it all starts off. No one really knows where we're going, do they still? No, I don't think so. Also, I think what summed it up, Mike, this week was, I think on Monday or Tuesday, we had FIFA's health Mm, expert saying, I'm paraphrasing, no, this isn't possible. These plans for restarting are completely unrealistic. And then within 36 hours, we had UEFA's equivalent saying, yeah, yeah, get on with it. <laughs> so if my point being is, is that if even at that level, there isn't a consensus, how can there be anywhere else? I mean, also people, people, you, you, you mentioned it, Mike, people are prone now to seeing what's happening in France, for instance, and saying, well, you know, that, that, that changes the Premier League situation. But then a day later, the Swiss leagues decides, well, yes, OK, we can restart in the middle of May or the, the, the start of June. I think what's, what's becoming apparent is there is no solution because country to country, there are different scenarios for health authorities to deal with. There are different infection rates and death rates and uh, infrastructural disparities. Firstly, it's very hard to know what's about to happen. But secondly, it, it's almost impossible to to use the position of another country or another league as a as a as a lighting the pathway moment mm, is absolutely no way it's money driven isn't it yeah if there was yeah. zero money at stake here zero money oh you've been it uh, off until the autumn you, you know that yeah. there would be no football until until september it it is a calculated risk but the, the issue and we're about to find this out is that calculated risks will be the new normal in the not too distant future. Now, I don't think the lockdown is going to end here in the UK on May the 7th. I think it will be extended again. But at some point to get kickstart the economy, life will get moving again. And we will be asked to, as people, to try and get back to some kind of normality. And yes, you might, you might pick up this virus. And that is surely the same, the same situation for football, isn't it? So, so I, I, look, personally, I just don't think we should be rushing it. June still seems too early. Deaths of this uh, coronavirus deaths need to be substantially lower before we can even contemplate playing football. It just it just feels unpalatable until then. But calculated risk will be our new our new normal in a few weeks or, or, or a month or two's time. And I think that football will probably fall into that category it's not perfect one or two people might pick up the virus but it if we want if we want to get things going and get resolutions it's something we have to do yeah and uh, until then i suppose we've got to plunder the memory banks haven't we <laughs> you know and speaking of which 
you know, BT Sport have got their series of European nights. The latest club to be featured on Sunday is Celtic. There are four games going to go out. The 4-3 win over Juventus in 0-1-0-2. The win over AC Milan in 0-7-0-8. Two that I'd like to look at quite closely, if we could, chaps. The 2-1 win over Barcelona in November 2012 and the 1-0 win over Manchester United in November 6th. Uh, sorry, 06. Let's look at that Barcelona win. That was Barcelona's first defeat of the season. It got it set Celtic up to qualify for the last 16. You know, we all know that you know Celtic Park is an absolute madhouse when it's when it's inspired in the way it was that night. And strange people emerge, and I use that word, you know, not in in an uncharitable way, people that you don't expect as heroes. Now, on that night, Victor Wanyama, who obviously went on to, you know, the the Premier League, he put Celtic one up. But then there's a lad called Tony Watts who came off the bench to give Celtic that cushion. Tony Watts, whatever happened to Tony Watt. Now, I just want to dwell on this for a second, if I may. Here's a player who exploded. He was the star. What happened was Celtic qualified for the group stage, signed two new strikers, Balde and Timu Puki, who actually stanked the place out in the end (laughs) before going to Norwich. Watt's now back in Scotland with Motherwell, but he's played for Lierce, Standard Liège, Charlton, Cardiff, Blackburn, Hearts, Leuven, St. Johnson, CSKA Sofia, and now Motherwell. That tells you that's a football life in about 10 seconds, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> yeah, and he's only 26. Yeah, I, I Is he really think. only 26? <laughs> only 26. Really? Um, yeah, well, he was 18 at the time. So, yeah, yeah. So, okay. yeah he's... Um, He's still kind of coming up towards his peak, isn't he, um, <laughs> as, as a front man? So, yeah, quite remarkable. But what I will say is, OK, he didn't stay at the, the highest level in, in Scottish football, but what a colourful career he's had, what, what experiences he's had along the way. And, and I guess that goal, and I don't, I don't want to be disparaging towards his all-round ability, clearly a decent player, but, but the name, the reputation he got for scoring that goal has certainly helped to get him some of those moves and, and, and to get him some of those contracts. So this particular night was was huge. It was the making of him, even if it wasn't the making of him as a as a Celtic legend. So yeah, what what a night. It was I mean that Barca team, boys, that, that Barca team were fantastic. They were they were flying at the time. And and I think the the footnote to that or, or one of the sad aspects of, of that was I think just a month afterwards, Tito Villanova was diagnosed with cancer for a second time. And of course, I think within within a couple of years, it, it, it tragically passed away. But he had a real, real class Barcelona team at, at that time that were flying. So for Neil Lennon, I mean, he's, I think his quote after the game was, this is the, probably the best thing I've done in my life. I, I, I'm guessing that's, that, that must still stand for Neil Lennon because that was an amazing result, right? When this came up on our list, I, I dug into some of the statistics about it. Firstly, like if, that, if that's the best thing Neil Luxton done in his life, then uh, that's, that's tough for his kids, <laughs> his, his wife. <laughs> um, but OK, so first half of that game, Celtic had 13.4% possession. The second half, 16.3%. 
So it's it's not only the best thing he did in his life, it's an actual football miracle, that performance. To be 2-0 up after, I don't know, being 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 starved of the ball like that is miraculous, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and also, I think the loudest probably I've ever heard a crowd was when Celtic played Rangers, when the title was on the line up there. The cliche is, and I know you talked about it being on the pitch, I don't mm. know, but... Mm. You literally, you turned to the guy next to you in the press box and you didn't, you couldn't hear what he was saying. And there was another night like that against Manchester United in November 2006. That 1-0 win put Celtic into the knockout phase of the Champions League, although they last, lost their last game. Nakamura scored a great free kick and Arta Borok, you know, made a late penalty save. Have you had much experience of, of Scottish football aid? No, I haven't really. No, I... No, I, I, I've seen one Scottish match in the in the flesh. That's all. I've been to Celtic Park. I met Henrik Larsson there actually when when it was peak Henrik Larsson time to do an interview with him. And yeah, I was struck by the stadium. I mean, absolutely glorious ground. And I was trying to imagine it full up and the noise. The biggest noise I've ever experienced was at Anfield for that Liverpool Chelsea ghost goal game. It, it, I think it actually broke records in terms of decibels created. And it was the first time, and I've been to hundreds of games, first time where I, where I thought, wow, they, these Chelsea players, they're in the eye of the storm here. They they look intimidated. They might even be frightened. And I think Celtic fans have that same power. I really do. <laughs> it's something about you'll never walk alone before kick-off. I don't know what it is, but Celtic fans can intimidate and, and, and make such a cacophony that, that it gives them that half a goal advantage if you like and and that was enough to beat Manchester United who didn't really turn up on the night if memory serves me right Van Nistelrooy had been sold the previous season so there was a little bit of fallout at the time I oh, was that a mistake Saha Mr Sitter late on in the game so yeah no I, it doesn't clubs like Celtic even though they've got inferior players you know on paper they will always have a chance of, of pulling off these kind of results with the backing and the stadium that they've got. So guys, so with the um, with the Nakamura free kick, um, obviously uh, he well he was incredibly popular back in Japan, and as a result, he used to film these little vignettes with his free kick taking ability, and you can still find them if you if you Google Shinji Nakamura, you can see him pre Insta pre Instagram he was filming. Yeah, yeah, back on YouTube, <laughs> like he would do, he would try and. He would knock targets off moving cars from thirty yards away, and he would hit things off tabletops. So well, if, wasn't if anyone that in Glasgow, I bet. No, would he? no. He, he, so I think they're part of um, a Japanese game show type thing. But do you remember? Um, do you remember you bet from back in the early nineties? With you know when you get celebrities coming on and doing little challenges, it's yeah. quite like that. People have an idle lockdown moment, which let's face it, we all do. Go and have a look for those because they're they're quite fun. I love that. <laughs> Talking of fun, Euro 2004. You know, football's meant to be about fun, about to be adventure, goals. Greece won that tournament by scoring seven goals. Yet, I don't think that team has had the credit it deserves. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable story of leadership and almost self-dependence, in a way. That team was managed by a veteran German coach, Otto Rehagel, who basically understood what he was going into. That his reign, to all intents and purposes, began with that David Beckham famous free kick that got England to the World Cup. 
He built a team by one refusing to live in Greece because he understood it was such a hot house that he would have people in his ear all the time. He basically got a group of players around him who understood and eventually believed in his philosophy. If he didn't believe in them, they were out. It was, it was a really ruthless process. And they knew what they were about. They could defend. They were rigorous. They were disciplined. And they always used to say, OK, we get to the 70th minute, then we can see about winning these games. <laughs> you know, they got through the group stage and then they won all their three games afterwards, 1-0 including when they beat the Czech Republic. There was, I don't know if you remember, guys, there was something called the Silver Goal yeah. in that tournament. Yeah. Was it which, the only ever Silver Goal? I think it, might I think it was. Yeah. Well, it certainly, you know, it certainly was the first tournament to have it. I can't I think of another no, one. I, don't think, I think it got scrapped afterwards. Basically, a Silver Goal, wasn't it? It, it was if you scored a goal in the first half of, of extra time, you didn't, get, you didn't have to have the second half. So, yeah, I, I don't think it ever happened again. Amazing. No, yeah, no. amazing. So, you know, what's your view? What, what's your memory of that tournament, Seb? That would be the tournament where I manually dyed my hair. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it I started to fall out. I no, think yeah, I that, had, <laughs> um, was it what they called when you do the tips? You yeah. know, no, it was one of those where you. Well, highlights. You know, you, yeah, highlights. <laughs> where you buy peroxide from the chemist and you just dunk yourself in it in a sink. It was one of those. And my hair's never been the same since. So anyone, for anyone who's met me in real life, they'll know that. But yeah, other than obviously, I don't know. It, it's it's one that I remember with regret from an English perspective because I think I remember what Wayne Rooney was in that tournament, and I remember what the rest of his England career, which was always I don't know that that tournament kind of set the tone for it because he obviously he broke his foot. And there was always a caveat or an asterisk with Rooney at, at major tournaments, wasn't there? It was always he, he was recovering from something, or he always wasn't quite fit, or he didn't he didn't fit a system, and or there was there was some reason why the world couldn't see him as a as the force that that he could have been. I think obviously there's a there's a very famous game against Turkey at the Stadium of Light where he kind of burst into burst into life as an England player. But it's such a shame because he was he was the best player at that tournament. And I think had he stayed fit, England probably would have won it. You know, resilient Greek side or not. Also, for the first time in years, I saw Michael Owen's goal against Portugal. People forget what a good goal that was, how, how he could finish. So I, I, I remember that now. But yeah, it's it's mainly my hair, I'm afraid, guys. I'm not sure that's great content for a football podcast, but that is <laughs> that is my dominant memory of I that like summer. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, A, doesn't it? It was England going out on a major tournament. Uh, with a penalty shootout. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the critical miss was Darius Vassell, who'd come on for Rooney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was typical, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was heartbreaking. I remember watching it with a group of, group of pals. I think I was living in West London at the time. I was sort of hopping from one flat to another during that period of my life. I did, I did actually go to the game. That, that, that story I told on a previous podcast about going to the game in Quimbra on the coach with the UEFA dignitaries in our England shirts, swilling cans of, of Sagres Portuguese lager on the back seats. It was classic, <laughs> absolute classic. But the, <laughs> never forget it. What? A, I don't think we slept. I don't think we slept until until we got home. It was it was it was an awesome trip. Yeah, England. It was, Rooney was sensational. Scolzi on the left hand side. That was that that was that time. It was peak sort of imbalance with, with the England team. 
no Rio. He was suspended at the time, controversially. So we were weakened. But yeah, on Greece, I just think it was, and I, I was guilty of it too at the time. I think they were described as the only underdogs in in football history that no one wanted to win. And I think I think that that, <laughs> that, that does get, does sum it up very well because they were dreadfully dull to watch. It was it really was anti football if if you believe in in such a word. But but I also there is more than one way to win a game. To you know to to put the to paraphrase the phrase. And actually, I had a lot of admiration for it because they were nowhere near the best team in the tournament or individually the best team. But sheer teamwork, good organisation, planning, character, resilience, all those old school qualities came together and they were like a family. I know that the players talked about it afterwards. Same group of players and a lot of managers kind of lost sight of this since. Same group of players. Very rarely did they tweak or add to that squad. Same group kind of grew up together for three, four years, building up to the tournament, and they trusted one another. And on a football pitch, if it feels like a family and you can trust it, trust the guy next to you, it's a powerful, powerful thing. And and the Greeks proved that by winning that tournament. A ploy, a tactic, a strategy, an approach that I think is too often ignored by coaches and managers these days. And the reason is they're not given the time, are they, to, to build these things. But if you do give the time to build, surprises like this can happen. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've actually revised my opinion pretty fundamentally over the last couple of years. I suppose, you know, we'll end now. And I want to end where we began with football's new reality. It's easy to talk about it. And, you know, let's face it, we've been doing that today. But it's already with us. Colchester this week released four senior players. They had 129 League Two appearances between them this season. The club simply couldn't afford them, the £27 million in debt. Those players, good lower league players, are now looking for a job. It's brutal, but a taste of things to come. Thanks to all of you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please, stay safe out there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 